Welcome to A Life in Film. This episode may contain spoilers. An English actor who had his first few lines in a film called Frankenstein, directed by Kenneth Branagh and starring Robert De Niro. He also had a small role in Tomorrow Never Dies, but he really hit his stride when he appeared in Notting Hill alongside Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts. He followed this up with Iris with Judi Dench. Other credits include Monuments Men with George Clooney and of course the hugely popular Paddington films. Not to mention his extensive time spent on stage with the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company, to name a few. But he's best known for portraying Robert Crawley, Earl of Grantham, in ITV historical drama series Downton Abbey. His performance on the show has earned him nominations at the Golden Globes and two consecutive Primetime Emmy Award nominations, as well as three Screen Actor Guild Awards. He also reprised his role in the two Downton Abbey feature films. Our guest today is actor Hugh Bonneville. Hugh and I chat about how his journey began as a child with a dress-up box and what led him to where he is now. His new movie for Netflix, I Came By, stars George Mackay and Kelly MacDonald. Here's a clip. I broke into that judge's house and I told you to keep me out there. I don't know what I saw. Why would he have a letter addressed to Hector Blake? I can't just give up the fight. What are you doing outside his house anyway? Hector's hiding something. I really tried to be kind. But I had this rage that was so liberating, so empowering. Do you want to know what happened? Thank you for taking the time. This part, I mean, when I watched it, I wasn't expecting this from you. Um, and it's pretty terrifying. Without giving, I mean, it's hard to talk about, isn't it? Without giving away spoilers. But I think to talk about this properly, you have to. Um, what, I mean, I can guess that that was the reason you took this role on. It's, it's something pretty different. Um, what was the reason mm. for, for doing this movie? Well, really, you know, uh, reading the script, of course, uh, and thinking, oh, I've got a handle on this. This is a film about uh, uh, George Mackay and his and his mate Percy, and they're going to be uh, uh, going to be our guides through the film. And then, blam! You're suddenly taken mm. in a completely different direction, and you're introduced to a character that, uh, again, you think on the one hand, as indeed the characters in the film do, they think, oh, we understand this guy, and uh, then you start peeling away the layers a bit and realizing there's a lot more going on, and it's a bit more peculiar. And then when you <clears throat> when you get to talk to Babak Anvari, the director writer, you realise that he's even more peculiar than his own script, <laughs> and uh, should probably be locked up. But it actually is a bit of a genius. So uh, that's why I wanted to get on board. I wanted to mm. get inside Babak's head. Well, right, and thinking Babak wrote this 20 years ago, and it was something that he was planning to to do as his maybe his first film, and he wanted to keep it quite contained. But obviously, he went on and um, won a BAFTA, and, and other things happened <clears> before <throat> that. Um, it's pretty amazing now that this came along at this point because he probably got a better cast, everything, bigger budget and everything else. This movie is, it's, it kind of harts back to a different generation of film, like the Hitchcock kind of era. Um, and I guess to give it away, it has that element of psycho where you're kind of expecting one thing and another thing happens. With Paddington and the movies you've done and, and Downton, I, I was full sense of security. I was thinking, no, you know, he's not going to be that awful. And it just... 
it escalates and escalates and escalates, <laughs> gets worse and worse and worse. Hello? I was reading about that judge. People call him a saint. He'd take on inquests on behalf of refugees. It's a publicity stunt. The elusive I came by taggers are back to haunt the city's rich. Fight the system, remember? Can you think of anyone who might have cause to target you? I was a judge, so yes, one or two people. Completely, because uh, well, going, going, going back to the script, the, uh, the, the directions that it takes, the, the left and right turns mm. that you really don't see coming or, or even if you start getting used to the fact that this film's going to surprise me it then surprises you in a way that you weren't expecting so and that was equally true of Under the Shadow I thought which was a, I think a, a wonderful piece of work and which really got me more and more invested in, 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 in the idea of this one um, because on, on paper reading some of this I thought this is just bonkers how's this going to work but then seeing Under the Shadow you realise the way that he makes films and the way that his narrative goes uh, and, and the, and the the trust you can have in him as a, as a filmmaker that he's not mm. going to let his audience down because he himself is such a fan of, of those genre films you were talking about, Hitchcock and, and sort of noir thrillers, um, that, uh, and he's given it such a contemporary gloss, a contemporary spin, that uh, I think he's a, you know, I think he's a, he's a sort of filmmaker of real, real worth and, and, and distinction and individuality. Um, so that maybe even the word uh, Anvari-esque will come into the lexicon eventually, but... Um, uh, you know he's uh, he's, he's certainly attracted to you know, this, this great cast, and for George to to play that role, um, mm -hmm. and uh, to have Kelly and Percy on board as well. Um, no, I think it's a, I, I'm, I'm really proud to have been part of it. It's a, it's a really interesting interesting piece. Mm. And your your character, how did you? I mean, how do you prepare for something like this? Because you can't really method it. It's <laughs> a, it's a very horrendous character. So how how did you go about that? Well, actually, if you think about people who, um, without spoiling um, what he gets up to, but people who've perhaps had a psychology like he has, mm. um, when you look back through history and through contemporary, if you like, real crime dramas and that sort of thing, the people who, who have committed uh, crimes of certain sorts um, have actually often been incredibly, quotes, normal people. Or you think they're normal people. The person next door who... Um, uh, uh, it's very hard to talk about without spoiling. But... Um, but who, who you think are your, your innocent neighbour and, and turn out to be actually what's behind that front door. Mm. Um, so uh, so I, think, I think the key to, to, to characters like these is the, is the utter normality. Uh, and in his case, the fact that he is a pillar of uh, the establishment, uh, albeit a retired one, but he's, you know, he's very much uh, respected in the upper echelons of uh, the establishment. Uh, you know, got personal contacts with the, uh, the head of the local police or the Met. Um, in his case, and uh, you know, friends in high places, so therefore, sort of untouchable, uh, almost like a you know a British politician, dare I say, or indeed, uh, uh, you know, there's almost a Masonic uh, type connectivity at that level. Um, I've just been doing another ser a series called The Gold, all about the um, Brinks Matt robbery of the 80s, where the police at the time were there was a sort of nexus between the police and often journalism, but. Uh, particularly with the Masons and the underworld. And so the, the sort of the nod and the wink and the handshake and the, mm. and the you know, who to pursue and who not to pursue uh, was very much, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a, if you like, a sort of hierarchy or other, or other uh, 
uh, upper echelons of society that was all run on a clandestine basis and you could argue that some of that still pervades today and what some of the frustration of the younger characters is about is that mm. they're feeling voiceless in a they're shouting into a void and uh, those in, the, in in control in power uh, hold the strings and uh, can dictate the pace of society and who's accepted in and who's not that's how i i mean watching this film that was something that you know, you're, you're rooting for those characters to take you down and you hope that it's going to have an ending that you want. You know, through the film, you're like, well, maybe it's not going to go the way I want it to go. But it, it kind of, the, the twists and turns really threw me. I was like, I actually have no idea where yeah. this is going. And it really, it, yeah, it really did pull me in. Can you, can you, now that you've played, I mean, you've played a whole range of characters, but this has got to be surely the, the most horrific. Um, do you th can you see yourself playing more villainous characters in the future? <laughs> well, I don't think he's villainous, um, but there we are. That's just uh, you know, my own perspective on the, on the sweet guy who's you know been dealt a bum hand. Um, uh, yeah, obviously any part that that gives you a bit of a, a a new avenue to pursue and more fun to be had. And as they say, the devil play has the best tunes. Uh, so yeah, anything that uh, is a bit more surprising than the last one you played is is, is good fun. The part that terrified me was the stillness of your performance, you would be, uh, there's a particular moment um, where you, you say something to one of the officers and you close the door and you have a quick word with her and because you're so still and calm the whole way through and then there's that <laughs> and it was a real kind of, uh, you know, tingles down the back of the spine <laughs> and you're, oh my God, you suddenly see that kind of glimpse of who he really is. Yeah, yes, and that's, that's again, that's all in the writing. It was like a when we when we uh, recorded that, he says something to the I can't remember what the words are to the police officer now, and it was a bit indistinct, and so we we shot it again, and then Babak said actually it's quite good that you don't quite hit, so that like the officer herself, she sort of goes did did he just say it was like mm. a proper gaslighting moment, you know did he just say what I think he said, and so hopefully the audience does too, but the but the stillness thing was something quite conscious, and so there's a bit in the in a swimming pool when I when I emerge and I I said can I. I, w I would like it to look like a crocodile. <laughs> he just comes above the water like that, you know, uh, spying his next friend. And um, so, yeah, that 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 was uh, that was just good. To, I, I always I often think about characters in terms of their pulse rate. Uh, and uh, you know, there was the famous, uh, famously Bjorn Borg, the, the great tennis player, always had a famously low pulse rate, even at moments of great tension mm. and crisis. And that's why he was such a supreme player. Um, and I always think that this, this character has a particularly slow pulse rate because what can possibly go wrong? Mm. <laughs> Babak, what was that uh, relationship like? Uh, well, terrific, because A, it's, it's come from his uniquely twisted brain, so there's a bit of a worry about Babak, but so you want to protect him because he clearly needs help. Uh, on the other hand, he's, he's a bit of a visionary at the same time, and, um, and uh, you want to do your best for any director that's been a, particularly a, a, a writer-director. You know, you're trying to help them bring their vision to life, uh, and you don't want to muck it up. Um, so, uh, at, at the same time, you know, you want to try and uh, defend is, is the wrong word, not, not defend your character, but but that make sure that your character is protected in terms of credibility and surprise and everything else. So we talk quite a lot about, you know, the background of the character. Even on the day, you know, we'd say, well, would he actually? You know, we'd, even on the set, you know, we'd look at the, some of the the props and the and the, the tone of the room and. I'd say, you know, well, talk to me about why that props that. What's that telling us about the character's background? Mm. And so he was very collaborative in, in that sense, and we discussed things and 
Um, it, you know, I always feel strongly that you've got to, even if you're in a in a strange fictional world, or in, not strange, but in a fictional world, it's got to, you've got to believe in it somehow. Mm. Even if it's on a spaceship and set in 300 years in the future, you've got to believe in the in the in the continuity or the coherence of the universe you're in. And um, so I would do the, you know, I challenge, not challenge, I would discuss with, with Babak saying, you know, well, you know, um, if he's if he's in this room in this beat can we also believe that he'd get to that room and that beat and that sort of thing so we'd always map things out and make sure it's credible so that even if in the edit it all changes you get a sense that that could you could defend each scene or each mm. moment and each situation and um even for a character who's as um idiosyncratic as hector um that there's an internal logic to what's going on to you know his world that he believes in in uh, that, that makes sense there's a brilliant touch which is in the script but i was concerned that you don't notice in the film that Actually, all the windows are, uh, have got a sort mm. of mirror thing on them. And looking at the house from the outside, you wouldn't necessarily know that. Um, and, there's, and so it was, it was, he'd, he'd marked it brilliantly. There's one scene where, where some of the plastic on the window gets wrenched. And so you realise that actually every window's got this, it's like a, a two-way mirror thing. Mm. You know, people can, can't see in, but he can see out, um, which I thought was really good. And, I just, and just little details like asking people to take their shoes off, I think is quite an interesting mm. power game. And who will and who won't, you know. And uh, initially, the police <laughs> all behave, and then towards you know later on, they think stuff you. I'm not taking my shoes off for anyone. Um, so all those little character tropes, I thought were really interesting, and and the way. Um, so we discussed a lot of that along the way. Yeah. Well, as you say, there was a there is a nice little moment with one of the policemen where he then doesn't take his shoes off mm. the next time he's there, and he's like, you know, it's a really small part, but that having that little moment mm. makes it. Yeah, very special. Mm. The the house is actually almost a character in itself. Mm. Um, I came from Kingston, so I know oh, that right. area, and I recognise the house straight away. It's in, it's in well, basically Molesy Hampton Court area. That's right. Yeah. Um, I'm right. I thought I was right. Mm. Um, that I mean, yeah, that house is now forever sinister to me whenever I drive <laughs> past it. But the it's the shape of the door and the windows almost looks like a face. Um, and I always thought, you know, the houses down that road are incredible. Yeah, um, but that it was going inside the house and, and the way they decorated it and the set design made it cold and made it kind of that not homely and it, and it really did suit your character. It kind of mm. felt like lived in but it wasn't quite, something was not quite right there, <laughs> especially the basement. <laughs> um, I, I guess there were locations all over London but what, what was the, do you know the reason why you shot there? Because it was supposedly meant to be Dulwich, wasn't it? There was something happened later on in, in pre-production. I can't remember what. Yes, I think they lost the house they wanted. Um, and we ended up, in, in fact, you know, as so often happens, you know, you, uh, uh, you think crisis, crisis, it's all going to be a disaster. And actually it turns out to be better. Um, I think that house, I hadn't, not that I saw the original, you know, the former house, but this worked out really, really well. Um, and uh, there was another location um, very close to there, actually, that, which... Um, which suited um, uh, the, the house that we see at the very end. Um, and uh, so we were able to film in quite close proximity, which actually helped helped a lot of things. But um, I remember in that road, it was quite surreal because there was a, every day there'd be the kids going, walking back and forth from school. And uh, one of the little kids, you know, spotted me. And, um, and so the next day the, the mum came over and said, could Mr. Brown come and have tea, you know, if you get a break? So uh, I went and had tea with this little kid who'd, who'd seen Paddington and uh, we had sandwiches and everything, chatted about Paddington and I was thinking, if only you knew what's going on next door. <laughs> that's not, um, 
He said, what are you doing? I said, we're just making a film, a bit like Paddington, but maybe a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> maybe wait a few years maybe to watch that yeah, one. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, if I may, the, the Life and Film podcast that I, that I do always talks about you know, how people get into the industry and obviously doing this film now, this is a, a different role for you. But how did, you, how did the passion for acting, how, how did, where did that come from? I, I heard, a, I think it was an interview with you a while back saying that you used to have a, a um, box with like dress up and you used <laughs> to do plays with your, mm. with your friends and stuff like that. Mm. Was that the sort of the beginning of your yeah, it passion was, for it? Yeah, it? it was really. Um, you know, just the dressing up box at home. I, my, my, my father had done national service in the Far East and my mum had been born in Egypt. And so they brought back bits of paraphernalia from their earlier days, which were just exotic as hell. And we're in this sort of old trunk in the attic and uh, coupled with, uh, you know, granny's old fox, fox uh, fur stir, stole or whatever. And it was a paradise for a, for a dresser-upper like me. And uh, so I invented, used to invent all these characters and then try and persuade my mates from up the road to come and be in my plays. They just wanted to play football, so I pretended to be in interested in football on the, on the trade-off was they had to come and be in my plays on the landing at home. And um, uh, so that's, you know, that's where I got a sort of bug. I, I had an older brother and older sister who were really into their school drama as well. Um, but they were that bit older, so I felt a bit like a, uh, a bit of an only child at times, and so the dressing-up box was my haven. Um, but also just mum and dad were really into going to the theatre and... and uh, uh, that sort of thing. So I got introduced to going to plays quite early on. I was very fortunate and feel passionately about the arts in schools and the, and the diminution of the arts in education. I think it's criminal um, in, 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 in a lot of states, uh, in the state sector. Uh, and uh, I think it's absolutely intrinsic to us as human beings to be able to find ways of self-expression and to, to have it cut out of the curriculum, mm -hmm. uh, I think is appalling. Um, but, uh, but in terms of the bug, um, yeah, it was just being exposed to the arts as a, as a, as a kid and finding that being on stage was a good laugh. And, uh, and then I think I played my, my first decent part in a short little play, aged nine or 10 at school, uh, in which my character had to ad address the audience. And normally, you know, being, having been in nativity plays or whatever, and you're just basically looking for where mum or dad is in the audience and waving and all that. This was the first time in character I had to address the audience. And, and I can remember, you know, looking out and seeing these, all these little upturned faces, you know, enjoying this story that I was telling them. And I, I really found that quite hypnotic. Um, and I'd obviously been you know, in the audience watching other people doing plays. But to find that, you know, quote, shared experience was really exciting. And uh, that's, I think, where I got the bug. And, and, but professionally, I never thought I'd do it professionally, but it was always a hobby throughout my teens. And the mm. National Youth Theatre was an absolute changing point for me, a, 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 a real milestone, because suddenly I was doing plays with all other kids that uh, loved doing them too. Because um, frankly, being at school, you know, some kids were put in plays as detention um, <laughs> and hated it, but uh, I loved it. And so, so the National Youth Theatre was very formative. And then, uh, and then after university, I uh, went to drama school and, and started there. But I never, <clears throat> never anticipated doing film or TV. Theatre was my thing. Mm. So it's really weird how things turn out. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, guess if you, if someone could tell you when you were a child at that age that you'd be here now doing Press Junket about a film that you've done for Netflix, and Netflix <laughs> didn't exist then, but, yeah. you know, at this level, uh, I mean, would you have believed it at the time? No, no, because I had this weird thing in my head that, that sort of British actors were quite good at theatre and that they were rubbish at doing screen acting, and that the Americans were really good at screen acting but didn't do theatre. I, I, that's completely, you know, stupid, whatever I was, 10, 12, that was my theory. <laughs> um, but of course, you know, you saw these amazing, iconic screen performances from legendary actors in, the, in, in, my, in my vintage, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and seeing performers like De Niro and Pacino and, 
and Brando, etc. And you think, oh, well, you know, none of our British actors can touch that. And then you see equally iconic performances, uh, you know, going on from, from any actor from around the world, frankly, in any nationality. Good acting is good acting. There is, of course, a difference between screen and stage. Uh, it's the way you project or mm. the way you don't project. Um, what's going on behind the eyes, all those sorts of things. Um, but I never thought it was a world that I'd be, I'd, I'd get to dip into because it wasn't a world I had any experience of, and nor had I any experience of professional theatre come to that. So, um, you know, my family was, was medical and um, had no contact with it really in the industry at all. So I started out very naive and fresh and just, uh, you know, just, just loved doing plays and learning my craft that way. Um, and funnily enough, it was when I was at the RSC at the Royal Shakespeare Company and <clears throat> didn't get my contract renewed, not through bad behaviour, I, I, I hope not anyway, but just simply because the, the cycle of plays had come to an end and uh, I, I was anticipating staying on and staying for several years, which I would, love, would have loved to have done, and it didn't happen and I, I, I felt utterly bereft because I thought I'd never work again and all that. And actually that was when I got my first proper telly job and, um, and that sort of led to more telly and et cetera, and, and so it went on. Um, and so, as I say, that strange career, you know, change I never thought would happen, that I started doing more camera stuff. And, um, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I lasted a play in 2018 or 19, and uh, I hope to do some more next year. But, um, but it's strange how, you know, things take over, and, and uh, I've done more camera work in the last 15, 20 years in the mm. theatre. First love being, obviously, theatre, but would you... Yeah, I mean, having a mix of the two must be fantastic. Would you ever dare to choose one or the other? Is there is there a favourite? Obviously, you have to say film because we're here talking about film. <laughs> if the pay was better in theatre, I'd probably say theatre. <laughs> but no, I, I do I do feel very very fortunate to be able to 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 work in in, in both um, and have a bit more choice and, and, and opportunity mm. in both. But I love both disciplines. I mean, the, the simple fact is, on stage, you have complete and utter control over your performance and the and the camaraderie that you form in rehearsal. You take into the theatre every night. Um, on screen, it's the other way. It's you are the least important cog in the machine, apart from those X number of minutes when you're on camera. And it's the crew that form that bond and that mm. day in, day out. And they work damn sight harder than the actors do. Let's face it. You know, they're there from dawn till dusk and beyond uh, in certain departments. And the actors, you know, arrive and do their bit. And we're all using different skill sets, so I'm not demeaning one or the other. But the, but the fact is that the the overall caravan, you know, the the, the sort of the troupe is the is the crew on a film set or a TV mm. set, and the actors pop in and out, um, and the and the opposite almost is true in theatre. Um, so, as an emotional experience, as a, as a creative experience, one could argue that the the uh, the rehearsal process and the and the building together of a of a piece of work that will be performed in a finite space of time, night after night, and tomorrow night you might get it right, uh, is p possibly more nourishing for 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 the mm. artist. Than the film work, but that's a huge generalisation because I've had wonderful experiences uh, on camera as well. I find um, I'm an actor myself, and I always feel sorry for actors that you know you see them in a if they're in a huge film, they've got that one line, and you can you can almost sometimes tell that they're like overthinking those three words, whatever it is, um, and that's why I point out the policeman in the film where he his part was fairly small but he made the best of it, mm. and having that little moment with the shoes is like a really memorable thing, and mm. I remembered it when you said it. Mm. Um, earlier on in your career, um, when you were building up those credits, did you, I mean, having obviously now the, the wealth of credits that you do have, but early on, did you, were you stressed when you went onto a set and you had to you know, do a small role? I mean, obviously now it's probably fairly relaxing, but... Uh, I wouldn't say it's relaxing, it's, it's just slightly different, but I do remember 
it's not in my IMDb credit, so you, you, you can't pin, pin this one on me. But um, I remember going on to a, one of my very, very first jobs, and I had one line, two lines. One of them survived. And, um, Can you remember them? <laughs> no, I can't actually. Um, but, uh, and I went up to the lead actor, who's, who I was doing the little scene with, uh, on the breakfast bus. He just got off the breakfast bus, and I said, could we, could we run our lines? And the look of disdain he gave me... Oh, my. Um, was so utterly crushing, and I thought I will never forget that look, and I will never forget mm. what it means. And uh, so I, um, I've always tried to make a point of of making sure, you know, if people are visiting a show like Downton or whatever, that they are looked after or at least feel comfortable mm. as much as possible, because uh, that was pretty crushing. And uh, I, I didn't fluff my lines, but uh, I won't. I never forgot. I never <laughs> forgot that moment. Because uh, I think you know we all need a, a help up, uh, a, a, hold, a hand to hold when we're starting out, mm. and uh, didn't get it from him. <laughs> oh, no. Would you would you dare to give advice, say to maybe your younger self instead of you know young actors today? But is there something that if you could go back and say it's you know maybe it's going to be okay or it's you know this or that? Have you got any advice you'd give? I was given a, <clears throat> there was a, a a great mentor of mine was the actress uh, Celia Imry, who. Uh, who I did a play with at the National, and I was, you know, new boy there again, sort of understudying and holding the spear, and I was terrified at the read-through and all that. In it, <clears throat> I was understudying uh, Neil Dudgeon in a play, and she, Celia was in the cast as well. And and she used to tell great stories about her mum, and uh, was a great uh, great ally. But uh, one of the one of the pieces of advice I think she'd been given, and she said, "Do it now, do it now." And um, so whenever I come to her with a, you know a question. Bit later on, you know, a few months later, or you know, year, over the years, I'd say, "What do you think about she'd do it now?" Um, which, uh, which was, you know, pretty good advice, I'd say. I think there's also a caveat to that, which is think it through, <laughs> then do it now. I did, uh, uh, I did make a complete ass of myself when I didn't get a part once, and I've written about this. I've written a, a book that comes out in October, and I quote it in there that uh, the wonderful writer David Nichols had written the TV show, and I was so absolutely sure I was right for the part. And I didn't get the part, and I wrote to him, telling him what a fucking idiot he was, <laughs> and, uh, and that they'd made a huge mistake. And to his great credit, he wrote back a hilarious letter saying, I'm sure we've made a big mistake, and, and if, when this show goes tits up, it'll be entirely my fault. And uh, if you see a you know, drowning hand waving, saying, Hugh, and you ignore me, I'll know why, and all that. And um, bless him, to his credit. I think that one I probably shouldn't have sent. It was, I mean... I hope I mean, he's you know I bumped into him once or twice since and he hasn't stabbed me but um, but I think uh, I think the petulance of youth uh, I think uh, or, or the impetuousness I think maybe cool that down think it through <laughs> then do it now do it now that's a good one I remember that <laughs> uh, I, I feel like after watching this movie I will never be able to watch Paddington again in the same way <laughs> yeah, um, okay. the minute that your character goes quite still I'll be like is he going to turn. <laughs> But is there any uh, any hope of a, another Paddington movie? Is there one in the works at all? I don't know whether or not you can even... Yeah, no, there has been. In fact, they announced it re uh, not so long ago. Um, it's, apparently it's called Paddington in Peru, so so oh. that gives you a taster. Uh, like, there isn't a finished script yet, or indeed a production date, so it's a little way off in the future, and uh, I don't know even if they're going to want Mr Brown back, so we'll have to see. Dear Aunt Lucy, you sent me to London to find a home. I have a wonderful family. I think you're in great shape for a man your age, Mr Brown. Ah, thank you, Paddington. Hang on, how old do you think I am? Oh, uh, about 80. Yeah, another one I have to ask about is um, Downton Abbey. Mm. Um, you've done the series, you've done two films. <clears throat> is there hope of another 
Another movie? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I sort of fluctuate between saying, oh, no, it's all over, quick while you're ahead, we had a lovely time and all that. On the other hand, um, the, the audience's appetite for it is extraordinary mm. and the love for it and the affection that so many people seem to have for it is, is, is still bewildering and, you know, in a good way. Um, so you never know. As long as we can keep, you know, Julian Fellows propped up with a pen in his hand, maybe, I don't know. It's up to him. <laughs> We, and me and my girlfriend take every, it's like a tradition, you need to do another one because we take her grandma to the cinema to uh, go and watch it right. and uh, she loves it, she really enjoys it. So okay. you, you have to, just for her, you have to do another dance and Okay. <laughs> Action! I came by, it feels quite different to anything else that I've seen on Netflix. I feel like it's almost a movie that could have come out in the 80s or 90s a really enjoyable like thriller. Are you kind of planning to work again with the director? Is there any sort of future plans to sort of do another movie like this perhaps? Well, to pick up on a couple of things that A, I'd, I'd love to work with Babak again um, <clears throat> once he's out of the loony bin because he's clearly mad. <laughs> but but secondly, what you just said about, you know, this reminded you of certain films from the ages and 90s, say, and I was thinking, reflecting on that earlier, I think you're absolutely right. And it's, it's great that Netflix have supported this film and films mm. like it that they are doing, both in the cinema and, and on the streaming platform. That these, these you know, we, we are very used now to box sets of 10 episodes where we really immerse ourselves in long-form drama and long-form character development, etc. But to be able to tell a story, as, as, let's face it, the film industry did for decades in 90 minutes or 100 minutes or you know, 200 minutes, um, and, and tell a finite story with as much depth and texture as the films that you referred to earlier, the, the Hitchcocks, whatever, is a genuine skill mm -hmm. and is a genuine part of this art form that I think is absolutely essential to celebrate and, 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 and uh, amplify as much as possible, and by which I mean the cinema. You know, yeah. uh, and it's great that Netflix are putting this out in, in UK, certain UK cinemas because there is nothing like experiencing a movie with other people. Um, uh, be it a be it a blockbuster or indeed a uh, you know Christ who's behind that door type thriller, mm -hmm. um, and to have that shared experience is wonderful. We can all watch films on our laptops, our phones, or whatever. Um, but to actually be in a in a cinema to make that conscious choice to go to a, mm -hmm. a venue where we share the experience, I think is absolutely wonderful. And films like this, which have a, a an intellectual rigor about them, as well as you know hopefully a cracking plot and a and good characters that you're interested to see how they develop. Um, is that it's a, it is that it is that arc of a story in a in a in a one-off experience, and um, you know that they're the heart and meat and the I think the, the pulse of, of, of cinema, and uh, mm. long may they continue. I love movies like this. It, it kind of did remind me, obviously, the Hitchcock, but it did remind me of things like Fatal Attraction. Yeah. Um, movies that when you're watching them, you just know it's it's escalating to somewhere mm. not good mm. and character-driven. Um, I'd love to see more of these sort of movies. It's, it feels like something that, as you say, in cinema as well, to have the audience, to have mm. everything like that. And with comebacks like, uh, you know, having the new Top Gun, there seems to be a lot of throwbacks to a different era. Um, and this definitely had that feel, but also current, as you, you know, mm. you were saying about the current issues it, it, it talks about as well. Um, in terms of, uh, in terms of, obviously we've talked about you working and doing all these amazing things, but as an actor, when you're out of work, perhaps earlier in your career, um, did you have any sort of, I think it's important to talk about, you know, for actors or people, even in the film industry, different if you're in the crew or whatever you're doing, being freelance, those downtimes where you're trying to get work and you're, you know, you're trying to get work but you can't, um, do you have any coping mechanisms for, for being out of work or um, those downtimes, hobbies perhaps that, 
that help you get through the sort of, I'm sure you don't have any gaps now, but back in the day. Well, it's actually, it's the other way around. I used to, I was ferociously busy because of that sense of, uh, you know, needing to keep working. Um, I took every single job that moved and, and I was very fortunate to, to work constantly in theatre uh, for, for pretty much 10 years, with pretty much without a break. Or, or, or knowing that there was a new job coming shortly over the horizon in theatre. So I, I was, you know, and I remain one of the luckiest actors I know for that reason, that I managed to keep working. Uh, it's actually a little, you know, I'm in the luxurious position of being a bit more selective now. But in terms of the coping mechanism, it's as simple as this, that the, that the rejection is part of the job. And it's that old thing of, of being thin-skinned and thick-skinned. Um, that obviously, you know, getting once you're in the audition room, then then you can show, you, then you're expected to show the, the, the thin skin, the, the vulnerability, the, mm. the range of your talent or whatever it may be, uh, whatever's required of you on that day. And then as soon as you're out the door, you have to have the thick skin on and go, it doesn't matter. If I, get, if I don't get it, it's not personal. I always think of the opening of Tootsie, where Dustin oh, Hoffman's going, you know, yeah. going through all those auditions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, saying, I can be shorter, I can be taller, I can be this. And, you know, saying, no, we just don't want you. Mm. And, uh, and trying not to take that personally, when, of course, you feel it's totally personal at the time, mm. when actually it is about chemistry and, uh, and everything else and where you fit in the, the jigsaw puzzle. Uh, that's one of the hardest things to, I think, preserve. And it does get that much easier, you know. <laughs> um, uh, I uh, again in the in the in, in the book available from all good bookstores uh, for pre-order uh, <laughs> is uh, you know I I I, I did uh, I did a you know, I, I hate I loathe with a passion the self-tape and I know it's all become part of the vocabulary mm. these days but I think it is a disgraceful way to interview someone for a job um, and uh, it's you know it was a necessity for a long time it is by and large no longer a necessity and the laziness of I think of uh, production companies now saying let's just get all these poor actors just to well not even poor actors let's just get these annoying actors just to put themselves on tape mm. day in day out day out and for these agents and their agents assistants to have to put all these packages together and, put, and upload them I think you know just meet the people face to face you mm. can and let the producers and, and directors on the ground make the decisions uh, and not have to go up through the food chain that's my rant over but um, I'll have one in a it's minute it's just the beginning it's just the beginning um, I've now can't even remember the point but um, <laughs> what was the question I can't remember what the question was I actually can't remember oh I feel like God. the rant has taken uh, over um, actually it was, it was about gaps in jobs but then oh you, gaps yeah. in jobs bloody hell <laughs> yes so being able to cope with the, the thin skin and the thick skin and the rejection yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and yeah it doesn't get any easier with age um I went to, uh, I'd done a movie with a, with a very well-known director and um, was asked to go on tape, you know, for, for his next film, which I thought, fucking hell, you know, I've, I've worked with you. So you know my, and you see my range. And it said on the instructions, please give an account of your career or you know, say things that you've done in your career. So I was, I was able to say, well, I've done things like a show called Downton Abbey and I've been in films called Paddington and actually I was in your film as well. <laughs> anyway, he, thank you for allowing me to audition today. And... Uh, I didn't get the part, obviously. <laughs> but, um, so you know, it, you know, that's me, age fifty-eight, uh, still auditioning. So it, it's uh, it, it's it never leaves you. I do also remember working with a wonderful actor, Sir Ian Holm, who's no longer with us. But um, we did a, I did a film in, uh, with him fifteen, twenty years ago now, and we were walking back to the hotel after dinner. We were in Italy, and he was looking a bit 
tired and I, I said, you know, are you having a break after this film? He said, oh no, no, I've got to go back to New Zealand to, to pick up some Lord of the Rings and then in the spring I'm starting this particular film and then, and then I go on to do this project. And I said, why didn't you just, why didn't you just take a break? He said, well, because the phone might start ringing. Mm. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's Sir Ian Holm, wow. aged you know, 68 or whatever he was at the time, thinking it doesn't get any easier. We are freelancers, we are yeah. at the beck and call of others. The only power we have is the power of no. Yeah. Uh, unless you're, you know, it's your Ken Branner and producing your own stuff. But uh, <laughs> on the whole, most of us um, who are you know, on the taxi rank, uh, taxi rank principle, you know, we are guns for hire or, or cabs for hire. We uh, we want to keep working. Um, at least most that's true of most of the actors I know, and mm. we feel therefore pretty fortunate when we do. Mm. This is a tradition with my podcast. I always ask, have you got an anecdote, a story? I say most embarrassing moment, but maybe a corpsing story or something where you're on set and it's something you're willing to share with us. Oh, just to humanise you for the audience, you know? Oh, crumbs. Oh, God, I'm really bad at <laughs> so this. So it's the worst last it question is, it as well. It is, it is. You, you know, think tell us something, do something funny now. Um, <laughs> tell us something funny now. Uh, worst moments. Uh, I mean, in real life, there's been plenty, you know. Um, but I can tell you the one about when, um, when we were opening Notting Hill in America and... Uh, I was on the on the pavement on the sidewalk with um, the director Roger Michel and his agent, and along the along the pavement towards us, as we were waiting for a cab, came um, came this young guy, and and, and uh, what turned out to be his agent, who happened to be um, uh, acquainted with Roger Michel, and went, oh, lots of handshakes, and I didn't catch the name of the guy, because uh, there was traffic noise, and just shook hands, and he had these books under his arm, and I was looking at them, and then he said, um, hey, you want to see a photograph of me and Marty? And I thought, who was he talking about? And he showed, there was a photograph of this young lad with Martin Scorsese. I said, that's Martin Scorsese. And he said, yeah, like we're doing like a monobrow contest. And I was, I was going, what are you doing? I said, this young fucking whippersnapper is, is taking the mick out of Martin Scorsese, this legendary director. And anyway, we said our goodbyes and got in the car. And, um, and I said, yeah, honestly, the cheek of these young actors. And it was just, you know, that was, God, I don't even, don't even know who he's talking about. And, uh, and, and, and Roger said, do you, do you know who that was? And I said, no way, he's just a you know, young upstart. Should have more respect for his seniors. And um, he said, well, I think, I think Martin Scorsese can live with Leonardo DiCaprio talking to him. Like that, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and these books were all about the gangs of New York under his arm. And uh, was two years later, I realised that that's what they'd been discussing. And so that was pretty embarrassing. We were on our way to a party hosted by Julia Roberts uh, for the opening of, the, of, of Notting Hill in, in New York. And... Somehow, by the time I got there, she'd already heard this story. She said, <laughs> she said you're turning into your character in, in Notting Hill. Doesn't recognise films. That's stars. perfect. Yeah, thank you so much, Hugh. Cheers, really thank appreciate you. It. Pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Tell me, um, Anna, what do you do? I'm an actress. Oh, splendid. What do you do? Well, I'm actually in the stock market myself, so uh, not really similar fields. <laughs> Though um, um, I have done the old bit of amateur stuff. Um, uh, P.G. Woodhouse, uh, farce. All that, you know. Careful there, Vicar. <laughs> Always imagined it's a pretty tough job, though, acting. I mean, the wages are a scandal, aren't they? They can be. I see friends from university, clever chaps, been in the business longer than you. They're scraping by on seven, eight thousand a year. It's no life. What sort of acting do you do? Films, mainly. Oh, splendid. Oh, well done. How's the pay in movies? Well, I mean, last film you did, what did you get paid? $15 million. Right. So that's fairly good. Thank you to our guest, Hugh, and thank you to Milk Publicity and Organic Publicity 
and Netflix for making this possible. I Came By is out in cinemas now and will be on Netflix from the 31st of August. And Hugh's new book, Playing Under the Piano, is out on the 13th of October. Support us on Patreon for early access to episodes and follow us on TikTok. If you enjoy this episode, please like and subscribe. If you have time, write a review. It will make a huge difference. Thank you. It's a life and fail. And you better come back next month to a life and fail. To a life-